0: Throughout history and up to modern times, we invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds and allow us to enlighten, educate and explore the real reasons why black African-Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Spring usually signals the beginning of horse racing season. In fact, one of the most famous horse races in America is the Kentucky Derby.
1: Yep, Aunt Carol. The run for the roses is famous worldwide, but I bet you're going to tell me and our listeners that even in the field of horse racing,
0: systemic racism has been lurking around the stables. I am indeed, Courtney. Horse racing was the most popular spectator sport in the 19th century, and Black African Americans were at the heart and in the lead of it then. Now, if you've watched the Derby, you have probably seen a bronze statue of the first Kentucky Derby winner, a horse named Aristides, and it stands in Churchill Downs Courtyard, just behind the racetrack's famous Twin Spires Grandstand. Now. As famous and as widely recognized as that statue is, very few people know the horse was trained by Ansel Williamson and ridden by Oliver Lewis, both Black African American men. These men made history by training and riding the first winner of the Kentucky Derby, but there is very little that commemorates that fact. So
1: true. In fact, 15 of the first 28 runnings of the Kentucky Derby, a Black African-American jockey won those races.
0: Your facts are right, Courtney. Horse racing was centered in the South. So enslaved and formerly enslaved people were a common sight as jockeys and trainers and people uh, around the horse stables and in the horse business. American slavery led to generations of Black men growing up around horses and horse riding.
1: Well, that would make sense, Aunt Carol, since... The South was a plantation economy and enslaved men and women worked those plantations. They took care of, trained, and rode the horses. So all of that kind of flows together as to how the African-American connection to the Derby actually started.
0: Yes, but Black African-American jockeys and trainers weren't limited to the South. Given their skill and abilities to big, uh, win big purses, they rode in a lot of different places as well.
1: Very true. Black African-Americans made their mark not only in the famous Kentucky Derby, but at tracks around the country, the United States, including famous tracks like Saratoga and New York.
0: That is true. But by the turn of the 20th century, though, white authorities began to systematically exclude black men and women from horse racing in spite of, or better yet, because they had excelled. That's what systemic racism is, Courtney, when policies, practices, and procedures are put into place to disadvantaged groups based on race, in this case, Black African Americans. Not only was systemic racism used as a weapon against Black African American writers, but negative stereotypes and bigoted comments began popping up around that time. Lithographs, cartoons, and articles began to circulate depicting black men as monkeys and buffoons, all of it aimed at humiliating them and supporting the myth of white supremacy. Eventually, black African-American writers were denied work and the change to white writers was regarded as the quote, natural order of things.
1: Oh, wow. Well, this change didn't happen out of the blue. I mean, what happened? Who was behind it?
0: Well, in a um, paper called Jim Crow in the Saddle, the expulsion of African-American jockeys from American racing, and this paper was written by Michael Leeds and Hugh Rockoff, they contend that the key push to exclude black jockeys came from white jockeys. Uh, They began violently attacking their Black African-American counterparts, or they boxed them out during races, or they ran them into the rails and and they hit them with their riding crops. Now, these attacks eventually began to prevent Black African-American jockeys from finishing in the money, and of course, those attacks endangered the, you know, those very fragile and valuable horse, uh, horses who were racing. And soon after the attacks began, the black African-American jockeys found that they couldn't get any rides. Nobody would hire them. Eventually, any owner or trainer who wanted to win a race had to put up a white rider. And soon the owners themselves were content to accept, quote, that new order of things. So basically
1: they gave into racial bullying and accepted discrimination and made systemic racism, the rule of the day in racing.
0: Yep. That's exactly what they did now compounding that was the idea of Jim Crow. As racism became more prevalent in the form of Jim Crow laws and segregation, Black African Americans were not held in high regard, and most were denied licenses to race as horse racing turned into a business with lots of rules and regulations that owners and trainers and jockeys had to follow. So
1: that would probably explain why from 1921 to the year 2000, when I was 18 years old, there were no african-american riders in the
0: kentucky derby no doubt no doubt you are right my dear niece now we've talked a lot about that famous kentucky derby which seems to be the icon of horse racing so it's fitting you have a story about that fabled racetrack and a black african american jockey associated with it i understand he lived a fairly amazing life Yes, he did.
1: His name was Jimmy Wink Winkfield, and he's relatively unknown in the name of sports, even though he dominated horse racing for most of his young r- his young life but his story starts out like a lot of black african-americans in the 19th century he was the son of a slave but he would grow into one of the best racing jockeys the world had ever seen and that wouldn't even top most of his adventures but let's start at the beginning jimmy winkfield was born the youngest of 17 children on april 12 1882 On a farm in Childsburg, Kentucky, where his father was a sharecropper and was in charge of the farm's thoroughbred horses. And that's where Jimmy found his love for horses. As a child, as a reward for completing his chores, he would be able to assist his father with the horses on the farm. And unlike things where kids kind of lose interest over the years, Jimmy's love for horses did not leave him as he grew older, it became a passion, almost an obsession, he dreamed about becoming a jockey, because at that time, much like the NBA stars and football stars of the day, black jockeys were superstars. And he wanted to race next to his hero, Isaac Murphy, a black jockey who became the first person to capture successive uh, wins at the Kentucky Derby and would go on to win a third. Now, Jimmy knew he had to be where the races were if he was gonna achieve his dream. So at the age of 15, he left home and got a job as a stablehand hand at the Latona Racetrack in Illinois. And he quickly rose from stable hand to being able to work directly with the horses, exercising and training, training them. And this at the time was his dream job. It paid $8 a week and had room and board. Okay,
0: so uh, he was rich.
1: (laughs) And that's exactly what Jimmy would boast in an interview well into his life of being a millionaire. That at that time, at the age of 15 or 16, he felt rich to be around the horses. Now, finally, Jimmy would get his chance at the age of 16 to ride as a jockey in his first race. It was August 10th, 1898, and he would be riding a horse called Jockey Joe at Chicago's Hawthorne Racetrack. He had been waiting for this moment his entire life, but right out of the gate, Jimmy made a mistake that would could probably cost any other jockey their entire career.
0: Wow, this story might be coming to a quick end.
1: Now in the book, The Kentucky Derby, The First Hundred Years, author Peter Chu described the scene as this, breaking forth from the rail, he cut across the path of three inside horses trying to get to the rail and all four horses went down.
0: Wow, a disaster.
1: He caused a four horse pileup now not only this was not seen as an accident and he did do it on purpose this was aggressive and dangerous behavior and it did not go over well with racetrack officials and stewards and it earned Jimmy a one-year suspension from the sport now for for any normal person that would have been like you know what I quit I don't want to do this but Jimmy Wingfield had a champion mindset. So during that year, he took time to learn the sport, train, and get better and learn from his heroes. And when he made his comeback in 1899, he came back with a vengeance. On September 18th of that year, he won his first race. Six months later in 1900, he rode for the first time in the Kentucky Derby where he placed third on a horse named
0: Thrive. Well, talk about learning from mistakes. He definitely came back big time.
1: Exactly. Now, in 1901, at the age of 19, Jimmy captured his first Kentucky Derby title, astride a horse named Eminence. He went on to win 161 races that year alone at the age of 19, including key victories at the Latona Derby, On a horse named Hernando and the Tennessee Derby where he rode a horse called Royal Victor. While these were spectacular accomplishments, he knew what he came to do. He wanted to be like his hero. So he returned to the Kentucky Derby in 1902 and won again. And wow! Him, back
0: so that was back to he won two successive derbies.
1: Well, he won. He came in third at his first Derby, which wasn't good enough. He won 161 races. So, at 1902, when he came back, third second was not going to do. He had to win, and he did. I got it. Wow! What a career! Now, in 1903 is when he achieved the impossible. He won the the Kentucky Derby. Again, this is for the second time in a row. Not bad for a 21-year-old whose racing career started with four four-horse
0: pileup. <laughs> yes, that's a comeback if anybody says so.
1: Now, besides being a great jockey jimmy was known for a cocky attitude and that got him in trouble a lot uh, and eventually it got him blackballed from racing because this was around the time where you were speaking on earlier that white jockeys were edging in and getting violent well jimmy winklefield number one he was the michael jordan of the sport at that time and he didn't take any mess so there wouldn't be any hitting him or, or whacking him with the riding crop because he might whack you right back um he also began to get threats from the Ku Klux Klan but he did not care he was still going to race because he was a winner but what did eventually get him blackballed from racing was the breaking of a gentleman's agreement
0: Hmm. wow so he he really didn't get run out he got himself evicted (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly now at the time he totally felt untouchable now he had made a verbal agreement to ride for John Madden so he's like the Bill Belichick of racing in New York if you think about the Patriots or even the Mike Tomlin big like big powerhouse racing family now he gave a verbal agreement Jimmy said I'll ride for you but then he just decided just for some reason to race for the competition. In the same race and win. so No,
0: (laughs) not good, not good, not good.
1: So uh, a, a very livid John Madden swore that Jimmy Winklefield would never race for anyone in New York again. And at that time, like we stated, racing was getting very racial and very violent. So when an offer came from Russia uh, and Europe, Jimmy booked passage on a luxury steamer and headed to the land of the czars where he would have some of his greatest adventures.
0: Well, this man, calling him cocky is an understatement. So uh, I'm really excited and interested in hearing what happens in Russia. In fact, leaving America and traveling to Russia wasn't exactly commonplace for Black African-Americans at that time. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to hear what Jimmy was up to over there. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag or reach out to us on social media Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. All righty. Okay, we are back and I'm looking forward to hearing what transpires for Jimmy Wink Winkfield.
1: Well, when we left Jimmy, he was relaxing on a luxury liner, escaping not only racism, but a a broken verbal agreement uh, to race in America, but he was heading to Eastern Europe and Russia. Now, overseas, Jimmy just went back to what he did best, and that was winning horse races. Now, it was very fashionable for European noblemen and Russian royalty and wealthy or oil barons to own top-tier horses. And they competed in races like competed in races in Moscow and St. Petersburg and Poland and Odessa, places like that. And Jimmy won multiple editions of the Moscow Derby, including aboard a four-time victor named Badahour. And he competed with great success as well in Austria and Germany. Over the years, he earned a king's ransom of $100,000 annually. My goodness. Just (laughs) by horse racing. And he was quoted as saying, just like Paul Robeson was quoted as saying, In Russia, they don't treat you any kind of way. So he was a black man. He was hobnobbing with royalty. He was a superstar, but he did not have to face that racism that he had grown up with in America now jimmy loved luxury so he purchased a suite in moscow's luxurious national hotel where he employed a white valet ate caviar for breakfast and drank vintage bottles of wine at his leisure
0: living the high life i'd say
1: living the big high life and his circle of friends included aristocrats and czar nicholas himself hmm. now living the high life in russia was something that he loved doing but what Jimmy was blind to was what was happening in the streets of Russia in 1917 the Bolshevik revolution had you know had happened but he was relatively untouched by it as well as World War One, but that would soon change. Now, he was a member of what was called the Moscow Riding Club, which counted amongst his members, members of the Tsar's Royal Court and other members of high society. When that revolution came, they saw the writing on the wall, so they headed down to Odessa, which became kind of a weird way of saying like a royal refugee getaway because the revolution hadn't gotten to Odessa yet, so they just made it a mini-Russia and things just kept going it was a refugee camp for the rich and famous and that's an odd oxymoron
0: <laughs> but they got away from moscow that's what sure. they
1: got away from moscow and they just kept going as things you know as things had not changed at all but when Tsar nicholas's family was assassinated they knew things were about to get very very real um the bolsheviks and the revolutionaries were hunting down anyone that reminded them of the white army and that high society and they were heading towards odessa Mm. now a hazardous escape plan was put together by a rich polish financier who jimmy had raced for before um in But his planning required 263 thoroughbred horses being led over 1,100 miles to Poland. And who would lead them? None other than Jimmy Wink
0: Winkfield. Okay, so let me get this right. The Polish financier is going to help these folks escape, but the 263 thoroughbred horses have to go too
1: the horses have to go the families have to go they have to go the only person they would trust to lead them through this is jimmy wingfield because he had the cockiness the attitude and the the fortitude to go ahead and i think he was paid pretty well as also i bet now they had little time to kind of put the plan together because cannon fire was heard outside of odessa uh the uh in the night and that made that plan jump into reality very quickly now the night before because had told them that the city was going to be taken jimmy and his fellow jockeys worked silently readying the horses and they would put their wives and children they would take their wives and children to the train station and they would all meet in warsaw poland hmm
0: Okay. So here we go. Horses, wives, children, everybody making the exodus. So what happened next?
1: Well, Jimmy recounts several different anecdotes, especially where they had to end up eating some of the horses. And even during the time of Lent, you know, when they were hungry, his Catholic cohorts would not eat meat. So they'd find meat and they wouldn't eat it. They would just go on being hungry. They were shot at. People thought they were gypsies. It was a harrowing, harrowing trip. But after a treacherous journey, Jimmy and those who followed behind him reached Poland and were reunited with their families. It had been a journey. And they lost some horses, some of which they had to eat. But 252 horses survived the trip.
0: My goodness.
1: But Jimmy didn't stay in Poland. His final destination would be France, where he would purchase a lovely chateau and marry the daughter of a Russian baron. Jimmy retired as a jockey and became a horse trainer in France, where he lived up until World War II, and Nazis attacked his home and he fought them off with a pitchfork.
0: My goodness, this man, who <laughs> oh, talk about a, an adventurer, a man of all trades, but anyway, what happened next? Well, the story of fighting the Nazis off with a pitchfork is a story for
1: another time. But Jimmy Wingfield died on March 23rd, 1974 in his chateau in France. His family and his supporters lobbied for admission into the Thoroughbred Hall of Fame so he could join the two other African-American jockeys who had been entered there. And that lobby did take a while. But on August 9, 2004, Wingfield was inducted into the National Museum of Racing Hall of Fame at Saratoga Springs. Remember, uh, mr madden said you would never race in new york again he didn't okay. he got put in the hall of fame <laughs> well there you have it the award was presented to his daughter lillian winkfield uh, casey by edward Hotelling, the president of the museum what a
0: life what a life jockey escape artist, husband of royalty. Jimmy Wingfield's story is a story I should say would make a great movie.
1: I agree. I would love to see a movie about his life and all of his adventures. But what about horse racing today,
0: Carol? Carol? Well, nothing quite as exciting as Jimmy Wingfield's escapades, that's for sure, but certainly there are instances of systemic racism we can talk about. Now, as you mentioned earlier, from 1921 to 2000, there were no Black African-American riders in the Kentucky Derby, no doubt a direct result of when jockeys were run out of racing back at the turn of the century.
1: That was quite a drought. Uh, but that was brought to an end by Marlon St. Julian when he became the first Black jockey to ride in the Kentucky Derby in 79 years. Then Kevin Cricker made a run for the Roses in 2013.
0: Yep, that's right. So it was a long haul but finally some Black African-American jockeys made their appearance. Now today, just like back at the turn of the 20th century, stereotyping and bigotry have surfaced in horse racing. In 2020, Kentucky horseman Tom Van meter had to apologize for bigoted comments he posted to facebook um now there was a a series of commentary going on on facebook about the threat of a boycott in the national football league and van meter posted quote defund the n-word football league unquote later in the thread van meter added put them back in their cage
1: So that goes back to that horrible imagery back in the
0: 19th century. And to put it on Facebook, sir, you were doing too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little bit way out of line. Now, in another recent incident, horse trainer Eric Guillaume was banned by the New York Racing Association for changing the name of one of his horses to a racial slur, which was directed at a Black TVG analyst. Now, Although these are not examples of systemic racism, but rather a form of racial prejudice known as stereotyping and bigotry. It stands to reason that this sport probably does have some hidden systemic racism baked into it, given its history and the fact that both these men felt comfortable using racial slurs.
1: Now we can only imagine what goes on behind closed doors and in stables during races, but races. But as the old saying goes, sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never harm me, while it's painful and racial epithets are never okay. There are words that can hurt and harm people, and those are written policies and procedures in horse racing. These policies and procedures are aimed at disadvantaging Black African-American jockeys, owners, and training trainers. That systemic racism, not the incidence of individuals using bad words, but it's the policies and procedures put in place to stop Black jockeys from racing.
0: That's right, Courtney. We don't want to hear those racial epithets, and we would hope people wouldn't use them, think them, or do them. But you're right. It's the systemic racism that's really harmful and painful and bad. Um, Now, though some are reluctant to call it out, Black African American horsemen and women say they still face systemic racism on a daily basis. For example, there's a trainer named Uriah St. Louis, and he said this, It's a lot of racism, a lot. We go through it a lot in New York. He went on to state that the track organizations had forcibly scratched his horses saying, they make it seem like something's wrong with the horse and there's nothing you can do about it because if you fight them, they punish you. He added, I've been doing this for 30 something years. I dot all my I's and cross all my T's Everything I do, I have to make sure I do it right because they're going to make an example out of me. And he went on to describe a situation uh, where he has to have a white woman go to the track every time he runs one of his horses to be there with her cell phone pretending she's taking pictures so the vets won't abuse his horses and eventually have to uh, those horses would have to be scratched because they'd been abused.
1: So, basically, Lewis is saying that because of his race, he has to be extra careful to meet all the rules and regulations. And he even has to protect his horses from unscrupulous vets. They're sinking
0: as low as animal abuse uh, to get him out of the race. Well, that's exactly what he's saying. And he says it's been done because of his race. Now, another instance involves Dr. Amy Casey who's practiced at the Barone Veterinary Clinic in Sunset, Louisiana, since 2004. But here's something interesting that ties back to what you were sharing with us in your your story. Uh, This veterinarian is actually racetrack royalty in her own right, because her maternal grandfather is the immortal jockey, none other than Jimmy Wink Winkfield. Now Casey has faced aggression and microaggressions her entire life. She recalled that one time when she was taking care of a horse, she uh, heard a, a, a trainer tell an assistant, quote, I don't ever want her in my barn. I don't need her. And she went on to say that she heard that comment. She didn't flinch, She just continued with her work and did what she had to do and went on to the next barn. Uh, She put her instruments and equipment away. She just waved and left the area. Wow, Aunt Carol, she must
1: love this sport. And those people must have no idea that they were actually in the
0: presence of like what you said, racing royalty should <laughs> they were but I'm sure that would not make a difference considering some of the comments these horse people have made about black African Americans. Now there's also the question of implicit bias in the equestrian world. In 2019 Abriana Johnson and Caitlin Gooch launched, Young Black Equestrians, the podcast, and they launched that podcast to share the diverse experiences of Black Americans, uh, Black African Americans in the horse racing industry and in the horse industry as a whole, and also to expose Black African Americans to a field in which they rarely see themselves. Now, these two women found when they interviewed other black riders that many of them had stories about police stopping black African-American men who were pulling horse trailers to see if they own the horses. Uh, They've heard stories about white people mistaking them for grooms rather than horse owners. And um, they, they've heard stories about the erasure of Black African Americans from the history of horse racing, uh, horse related professions and sports, and even from stories about cowboys and cowgirls.
1: Now, erasure is definitely an issue, especially in this arena. And I hope those young equestrians and those in the rodeo circuit start to change that narrative so young and old Black African-Americans and all Americans can see Black African-Americans in the horse and equestrian world.
0: And you raise a good point, Courtney, because a lot of the reason (laughs) folks are not involved in that world is because they don't see themselves. Now, another problem is the paucity of owners in the racing world. Now, along with Wayne Shear, Greg Harbutt, and fellow Kentuckian Ray Daniels, co own 2020 Kentucky Derby starter Necker Island. That was the horse's name. Now, Harbit and Daniels are two of the only Black African-American owners of classic contenders this century. So they're the only Black African-Americans who have had uh, a horse racing in the Kentucky Derby. Now, some would say that makes sense because racing is a rich man sport. But I contend that still points back to systemic racism. Remember, We've talked about the wealth gap between Black African Americans and whites because of housing discrimination, unequal use of the GI Bill, redlining, all of that, which were key methods for uh, building generational wealth. Now that wealth gap grew wider and wider during the 20th century, putting Black African Americans well behind whites to be able to accrue the kind of generational wealth that could make horse and stable ownership a possibility for Black African Americans. So although there are a handful of these folks who are jockeys and stable owners and horse handlers and racehorse owners, without the wealth gap, There could have been many more Black African-Americans in those areas. So, Courtney, like all of the institutions we've talked about on our program, horse racing has a lot of cleaning up to do to make the sport more inclusive and to overcome systemic racism.
1: Well, Carol, it seems like systemic racism is in almost every part of our society, but it's our job to see it, say it, and confront it. So that brings this episode to a close. But if any of our listeners would like to catch up on episodes, give us a rating, leave a comment, check out our course, or even listen to past episodes, you can always visit us at our website, www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.